President Biden recently invoked the Defense Production Act to support investment in domestic drug manufacturing. It's part of the so-called Bidenomics, and it's designed to bolster supply chains and increase spending at home. Well, what's the strategy here, and will it work? Welcome to Care Talk, America's home for incisive debate about healthcare business and policy. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the president of Walgreens Health. Hey, come join our ever-growing community on LinkedIn, where you can access Care Talk content and interact with your wonderful hosts. And be sure to leave us a rating on Apple or Spotify while you're at it. We love those ratings. So, David, what is the Defense Production Act and what is how is defense becoming part of healthcare? I mean, what's going on here? Yeah. Well, Defense Production Act, it's it's the main source of presidential authority to expedite and expand the supply of materials and services for the U.S. industrial base needed to promote the national defense. John, it came out of the Korean War. That's when it first was uh, first put into place, although its antecedents go way back to World War One, John, and World War Two as yes, well. Yes, against when, when Woodrow Wilson was organizing us against the imperial the, the imperial German uh, alliance. Uh, you know, David, but let's let's step back a second. This this I think is an outgrowth of uh, an uh, understanding post or during the pandemic that we had a problem in terms of sourcing critical healthcare supplies in the middle of a public health emergency. I mean, there was certainly a lot of talk about it then. Uh, and but how does the Defense Production Act actually allow? us to solve supply chain problems in healthcare? So there are two main uh, categories. They call them titles within the Defense Production Act, Title I and Title III. Title I is about prioritization and allocation. So that basically says, hey, Mr. President can say, or Ms. President, here's things that are important and you have to accept and prioritize government contracts in these areas. So President Trump used it for personal protective equipment. There's another one. So that's great if you have existing capacity. There's another one about expansion of the productive capacity and supply. So the presidents can actually make loans, provide guarantees to businesses and directly purchase critical uh, supplies and repurpose production facilities. So in the pandemic, it was used for nasal swabs and respirators. Uh, President Truman used it uh, you know, to establish heavy industry uh, to be able to fight the, the Korean uh, war or police action, as you may wish to call it. It was it was a war. So this is sort of like a wartime mobilization act. I thought, you know, I thought, aren't you one of those people who just believes the private sector will provide and the magical, uh, invisible hand of Adam Smith renown it, it immediately meets the supplies that we need? I mean, what could possibly go wrong with the way we are set up right, with the with the private sector? supporting at a very high cost, I might add, the healthcare system. <laughs> well, John, there's a lot wrapped into that. So I'll take the simple uh, version of it. Yeah, I'm a believer in the invisible hand in general. And I think the Defense Production Act is an example of sort of, you know, wrapping us in the flag of patriotism, uh, which happens uh, during wartime when people want to do more central planning and repress individual rights. And you wrap it up with uh, defense or patriotism and it does it. And that's that's pretty much what the defense Defense Production Act is, you know, in the Soviet Union, they call this central planning. The Soviet Union went out of business, but the U.S. is still using the same David, activity. I mean, I, 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 let's let's be honest. Over fifty cents of every healthcare dollar is somehow related to the government. The government's the largest payer; it buys everything. And I, I think it's completely reasonable that the government should be more directive 
uh, to, with the private sector. But, but aren't we, if we're already, but let me understand your private sector yeah. perfect system. If we're already paying the highest prices for everything in the world, how can it be that we need the Defense Production Act involved with our healthcare system in the U.S.? Defense Production Act was really, you go back to how it was used to, in the Vietnam War, it was used to prioritize and uh, accelerate the production of the M1 tank by Chrysler. Yeah, and, uh, and, during, and, and, uh, during the, and Agent Orange, John, it was also used uh, for that. So. Yes, yeah, and, and, and Agent Orange. In the, in the Korean War, uh, it was used to you know, distribute manufacturing and prioritize government use of critical materials to support uh, our, our soldiers and, 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 uh, and sailors uh, in the Korean War. But those are situations where there's only kind of one buyer and yeah. you, you've got a, the, the, urge, the, the fierce urgency of a, of a wartime situation. I don't quite understand how we ended up with a healthcare system where, again, everything costs too much. Yeah. We need somehow, you know, the, the government meddling around. I thought the, the, the private sector was perfect. So, John, the government is supposed to have a monopoly on the use of force uh, and on the military. And so it makes it a monopsony. They're the only buyer. And therefore, Defense Production Act kind of makes sense, right? The government's the only buyer. Therefore, they may have some say on the industrial base. Now, it's interesting in healthcare is sometimes we pretend that it's a free market. And so what happens is it's a supposedly free market, but the government is providing most of the money. And so you see a lot of distortions. I was just in Canada over the weekend and talking to somebody who's taking a bunch of medications. Oh, Canada. Yeah. Well, is it Quebec, which this person is an English speaker, so they consider it part of Canada. And they were saying, how, does, how come it's so expensive? For Here's what I pay for drugs. He has 12 drugs that he, that he takes. This guy's 89 years old in good health. It's like $150 a month. How, how come it costs so much in the U.S.? And how come people are coming here for insulin? You know, I didn't understand it. And I said, well, yeah, it's because it's the only government in the world that doesn't actually negotiate drug prices. They're, they're doing all the payments, but they're not negotiating for it. So it's actually reasonable to extend this, John. Uh, maybe Defense Production Act is a misnomer, but to extend the same concept uh, into healthcare because government is the main buyer, although not the only buyer as they are with the military. But we actually are in a moment of crisis, particularly in some critical generic drugs. I mean, the drugs that everyone knows, amoxicillin, penicillin, uh, certain chemo drugs. I mean, there are, I think, 150 drugs that are, that are on a sort of the, the, the high risk list at the FDA that are critic, that are Adderall, uh, that are critically in short supply. I mean, how did we end up with this where there's so, such, such a, such a challenge with 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 uh, supplying drugs that uh, you know almost every American family is going to use at one point or another. In some cases, one of the three people is going to get cancer. Adderall is a common ADD medicine, but penicillin and amoxicillin is sort of a standard. Like, how how do we end up running out of that? All right, John. So the thing with making uh, these antibiotics and making injectable products is actually they they tend to be. Uh, low margin, low price, because you actually have something close to Adam Smith's perfect competition there. Unlimited number of uh, suppliers, low barriers to entry, undifferentiated products. The problem is that you're not making pins or whatever they were making back in Adam Smith's day. And instead, you're making these drugs that actually are complicated to make. And just because they're low price and low cost doesn't mean that they aren't complicated and the lines don't get shut down. So when you have uh, some contamination which occurs, then a whole factory can be shut down. And you have these supply uh, supply issues. So it hasn't been worthwhile for the manufacturers to actually invest here. The same drug, the same factories that make these low cost 
products are also making higher margin products, the more the branded products, and the FDA comes in, they don't care if it's a high margin or low margin project product that's causing problem, they'll shut the whole factory down, give you a 483 letter. So companies have generally not wanted to make these products. And uh, so you don't you don't actually have perfect uh, supply because there's not enough people that can make it. But you've also got I mean, this is where I mean, and don't go blaming the FTA. I still think the FTA is one of the best regulators that we've got, David. Uh, But I think that what what many not may not realize is I think 70 percent of the 4000 drug manufacturers that supply drugs in the U.S., places where uh, drugs are manufactured are abroad. Yeah. And as the as the as the as the market has pushed down the price and in a time when we had much greater hopes for fair and free trade with China, uh, as we now have with India and, and the majority of those sites, but not all of them are in China and uh, India. I think that we have gotten we put we put ourselves where we kind of outsource the supply out X U.S. But those are still federally regulated facilities. They just have much lower cost of manufacture and labor. And you to have had, I mean, as as uh, the commissioner of the FDA, Rob Califf, mentioned the other day in a speech, you know, branded uh, uh, prices uh, for drugs are actually much far too high. Yeah. But that doesn't prevent, prevent a system where, in the case of generics, those drugs that are off patent and that can be manufactured by, you know, multiple uh, manufacturers and that hence the, the the free market aspect where there's a, a sort of a drive to the bottom um, and that can create depending on where that price sits in it and it does move around a bit uh, uh, some 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 uh, some outages and some shortages so that I think the combination of those shortages plus the fact that or the uh, that are created by the market plus the fact that it's Outside of the U.S. is what's triggered this desire to use the Defense Production Act, which is kind of a blunt, but in your point, poorly aimed instrument. Do you think this is going to solve the problem of drug shortages? Is will the DPA solve the problem of drug shortages in the U.S.? So the answer is no. But let's look at this. So it's interesting that you know this issue about the drug shortages predates the pandemic, and it's a very thorny one. And I've given you know one part of the convoluted. Uh, reason of what's happening, but it's, it's not completely clear. There, since the pandemic started, there's been three attempts uh, to basically bring drug manufacturing to the U.S. and, and help the supply chains to become simpler. And the first was in 2020, uh, President Trump issued an executive order. In 2021, uh, President Biden created a public-private consortium to look at this. And now we've got this uh, invocation of the Defense Production Act. Now, except for vaccines, there's been little or no uh, movement of production to the U.S. And the reason is that there's, you know, there's, it's still cheaper to produce, much cheaper over in China or India. And so no one's going to willingly bring it to the U.S. What has changed now, though, is the assumption, okay, it's cheaper, except what if you can't get it here or it's not being produced? Then it's not cheaper. And that's one of the things that changed with the pandemic. So there's some possibility that these new efforts on uh, supply chain resilience and reducing shortages will have an impact if companies recalculate the cost, not just what do I, what's the price I pay in India or, or what's the cost of production, but can you get it or not? And to that end, what's new about what Biden is doing is setting up this supply chain uh, resilience council with, uh, you know, senior co-chairs on it. Uh, the White House National Economic uh, Council leader and the National Security Advisor are the chairs and a 
bunch of heavy hitters there. And then also they're supposed to accord a coordinator uh, to monitor changes in the supply chain, et cetera, and basically bring the HA, the health and human services, healthcare side of the world, similar to what the defense department has, which actually does a fairly thorough job of managing supply chain in the U.S. for military products. But there's, I, I do think that it's it's really interesting. And I think that there's been a lot of interest in the DPA because it was thrown out around a lot during the public health emergency uh, by people in Congress, people in the press. Uh, the White House counsel was under um, that, that uh, Peter Navarro. And it was actually utilized for things like ventilators and uh, PPE. And, you know, one of the things that ventilators are a perfect example of where we bought a bunch of them and probably bought a lot more than we needed to. It, 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 industrial policy is hard to get right. But when you are literally running out of basic antibiotics, as the commissioner of the FDA mentioned the other day, these shortages and these problems in the supply chain are a national security issue. And certainly that's been recognized by the Pentagon. So hence the invocation of, uh, you know, a, a sort of a, the imprecise tool of the Defense Production Act. But I think what's going to be really interesting, and you're seeing it, I think, in targeted industrial policy throughout the Biden, it, throughout the Biden administration, the CHIPS Act, which to, to bring back um, uh, semiconductor manufacturing to the U.S., this resilience and supply chain council at the White House with you know, literally the head of the National Security Council and the head of the, uh, the National Economic Council. I mean, this is elevating to the Secretary of the Commerce and the senior, senior levels of the White House, you know, effectively some form of industrial planning, which I know is something that we in the U.S., like people like you and many, are uncomfortable with. But I do think it's kind of critical. Um, you don't have to imagine a, a world without trade um, that, that would create, obviously, massive uh, barriers for our manufacturing because our supply chains are long and varied across glo globally to uh, identify critical choke points like generic manufacturing of common drugs as a, as a real problem. I mean, another solution, David, might be just to pay a little bit more in a more consistent way for the generics that we need in bulk, and you know, we've, we've, we the government does set prices for how much it's going to pay for those drugs when they're uh, when they're um, when you're paying for it under Medicare. Why shouldn't the government start to think about setting a floor for generic prices in uh, that that might actually promote, if if not just domestic production, maybe it would promote at least consistent production of these desperately needed drugs. I think there is a possibility for that. So, John, you know, ideologically, I'm opposed opposed to central planning. But I think that as we look into the world, there are actually market failures, and there's also what we see now in a multipolar world. You've got countries like, in particular, China that enter things like the World Trade Organization, but then may actually use it as sort of you know strategically uh, in a way that may undermine their you know their adversaries. Here's an area where I think, but but I also think if you see like the Gates Foundation. You know, they have actually created a market for some vaccines where there wouldn't naturally be a market because you're serving people that are too poor to pay. But they say, hey, if there's a vaccine here, we're going to pay for it. So there's things like that, which I think is similar to what you're describing on, on generic drugs. An area that I think actually we can get behind does make sense is providing more information. So the government, without having an industrial policy, provides information about economic activity, housing starts, 
you know, all sorts of things like that that actually help people in the private sector uh, help that invisible hand actually get the information that it that it needs. And similarly, I think with this uh, supply chain resilience and shortage coordinator, they can actually help get information out there, like you know, what capacity is there? What are the inventory levels like? What are where do things actually stand? Whereas that information is now sometimes protected by people who are just trading uh, these products. And it would be better if that information were more broadly available. That's an area that I think could be could be helpful. Now, in defense, it's different, right? You don't actually advertise, hey, here's our capacity to make titanium for fighter jets. But in healthcare, it would be actually helpful to the players in the market, which include hospitals and drug companies, to be able to actually know more information that's there. And maybe there should be something that actually takes into account uh, the cost of a potential shutdown. So the same way that banks have to have some sort of a financial reserve uh, they can't just loan out all their all the deposits. Uh, maybe there needs to be something similar in the pharmaceutical industry, where either there's some some allowance made for the fact that you know you may not there may not be that much resilience, whether it's certain inventory requirements uh, or certain you know fee that's assessed. So you're kind of inching your way towards my notion of a price floor. You're sort of like there's a but you but you're not willing to uh, you're not willing to raise the floor. So you've got price and quantity, right? So you can have a price floor, but does that mean you can sell as much as you want, you know, into that? Or is it better maybe to ensure that there are long-term contracts uh, or that there's a backup uh, supplier uh, and that we're looking at these you know, systemic risks in the right way, where all of a sudden, what, you know, what, at least to put out these scenarios, what if, uh, you know, you can't bring in any product from China? That just happened. Now well, that rather becomes- than answer a question with a question, David, let me let me suggest a, an operating. Front. I do think we need to set a price floor for commonly needed drugs, and I and I and I think that we're the government's in a perfect position to do it. Spending so much, you know, half of the four trillion we spend is 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 government money, so we could absolutely do that. And it 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 it, it, it but it it sort of depends on whether you believe. You, know, you could do a strategic stockpile, which is sort of yeah. one of the, the things that you imprecisely uh, started to articulate. Yeah, and I think that actually exists, and there are a lot of these drugs are actually there. I don't think we've ever exposed what is in the strategic stockpile. Uh, we we know that ventilators were there, but there weren't enough. Uh, but we, for for national security reasons, don't do that. So I think that we've got some element of planning related to those supply shocks or surges, particularly if there's a, there's a national security need. But right now we've got 150 drugs roughly that are in short supply and that list grows. So I think we absolutely have to start to think about creating a market signal through pricing that would solve the problem and government's in the right place to do it, even though ideologues like yourself are uncomfortable with the idea. All right, John. Well, in the, in the spirit of continuous improvement, I have an idea. Since you don't like it when I answer a question with a question, next time you'll give me an answer and I'll give you the question. Think about that for a minute. Now, my last question for you is, will this invocation of the Defense Production Act be a winner politically? I think that the, my, my view of the president, I'm I, I, I'm a I'm a I'm a fan of 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 measuring people on results. You know, we've got a, a strong economy, low unemployment. Um, we we don't have a public health emergency, and we've got a coalition of supporters abroad. But I don't think the president has necessarily uh, articulated his successes as well as he might, and that is reflected in very low poll ratings. And so I think even if he's doing a, a absolutely the right thing, which I think he is, 
Uh, I think they have to find a more thoughtful way to articulate this and other successes and ideas that uh, even when they get like the, the, the bipartisan chips act, uh, it was an extraordinary win. The, the successful end and exit from the pandemic, extraordinary. Uh, I think they, he needs to, they, the White House needs to figure out a better way to articulate it so that even if he's successful, uh, unless you communicate it correctly, I, I don't think you get credit. I think that's fair, John. You know, there's a soft landing that's coming that, you know, everyone said was impossible. impossible. <laughs> and somehow they're managing to engineer it. I think if anything, uh, it's a good defensive play. Uh, these things that you're protected from attacks and that in fact, attacking is what works politically. And so get your defense, including Defense Production Act, uh, and need to attack if you're going to be successful. In any case, attacking is not part of what we do here on the Care Talk podcast. That's it for another episode. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the president of Walgreens Health. If you liked what you heard or you didn't, we'd love you to subscribe on your favorite service.